This is Tony Johnson with Heron.org. I'm here today with Rodney Christopher, one of Heron's directors of Capital Markets, and we're here today to discuss the importance of unrestricted revenue for nonprofits. Hi, Rodney. Hi, Tony. Thanks for having me. You have been working for a long time in this field, first at the Nonprofit Finance Fund, and then more recently with the Heron Foundation looking at enterprise capital. Can you talk a little bit about why unrestricted revenue is so important for nonprofits? Gosh, the importance of unrestricted revenue. I mean, we have a sector that is filled with organizations trying to do great things. And right now, they're being given money in a way that doesn't allow them to do great things. They're being given money in a way that requires them to be very, very specific, to get money. It's very exhausting, that process. And, you know, think about it as, like, you go to Macy's and you go to buy a pair of shoes. You don't get to tell the person at the register that this money can only go to serve the woman who cleans the third floor restroom. That is the way we're asking nonprofits to raise and deliver on their services. And I know a gentleman that came to work with us at Nonprofit Finance Fund who'd spent most of his career in the for-profit sector, big companies helping to grow small companies into big companies. He really wanted to bring that skill set to the nonprofit sector. And as he got more involved and he looked at what it means to run a nonprofit organization and how you have to cobble together money from all different kinds of resources, he found himself saying, wow, this is like black diamond management. And of course, my first reaction was, what's black diamond? And then he explained it's a ski term for, you know, the hardest slopes. And I thought, you know what? That's a really good way to describe it. You know, people who run for-profit companies, they get to work primarily on the criterion of, are they generating a reasonable profit that can turn dividends to shareholders? That is their primary criterion. Nonprofits are juggling so many different responsibilities. And asking them to do that without having money that they can spend the way that it makes sense is kind of hilarious, but yet that's the world in which we live. And really, I think the reason why they exist, restricted dollars, is that the people who give money away have a few really important sort of challenges. One is they've never run a nonprofit organization. Another is that they really want to know that their dollar is achieving a certain impact. And their assumption, which is in fact erroneous in my experience anyway, is that restricting that dollar to a specific expense is going to achieve the outcome better than if they simply gave the money to the organization who then agreed explicitly what they're planning to do as an organization with all the money that they get and then report out to their funders collectively, this is what we've done, that individual funders really want to seek their own specific impact and they see the organization as a tool to do that. And also, quite frankly, they don't really trust the leadership of organizations to deliver on what they say they're going to do. And it makes me sad, frankly, and it also presses my button on this question, why are you giving money to an organization you don't trust? That's a very fundamental question. And I think part of it is they don't know who else to give it to. (laughs) I mean, they want to do well. I mean, I'm grateful for philanthropy in all its many shapes and forms. But I feel like it's often really, really misinformed. And, you know, it's a hard thing to fix, particularly if you're running a nonprofit organization. But one of the privileges of being where we sit today is we actually can engage funders, many of whom, when you engage them on the subject, they get it. It's just they've not been given the opportunity to think about it very much because they're so focused on the impact and their knowledge about the specific kind of impact. You know, everyone has a program area. And you know, here at Heron, we're really focused on the enterprise, which is inclusive of all the program areas that are relevant. 
And we really push their buttons. And the organizations get uncomfortable talking about this stuff, too, because they're used to the system that we have. I had a dozen questions running through my mind while you were talking. One of the questions that I have is when we're talking about revenue and unrestricted revenue is this issue of ratio of overhead that keeps cropping up and what's the appropriate ratio. And can you talk a little bit about how the overhead question is damaging and where it might actually be helpful? Sure. I mean, this is a question in my 20 plus years working in this sector. It's probably one of the questions I've gotten asked most frequently by both people who run organizations and people who fund and invest in them. Because everyone wants to have a number. They want a magic number. And what I love to tell people is, In some respects, it depends on the size of the organization. I think about the college that we went to. Every college needs to have certain functions. Every organization needs to have certain functions available to be successful. And when you're in a much smaller shop, the percent of the cost of the enterprise that needs to be spent on the financial aid officer, the business manager, the marketing team, the office of the president, all those things are expensive. And granted, in smaller institutions, they tend to pay less or the cost as a dollar amount is less. But as a percent of the total, for a smaller enterprise, that percentage could be 30. But it doesn't have any bearing on whether the organization is effective. Similarly, how often do we ask major corporations what percent do they spend on overhead? Now, one of the things I've learned since I've been here is there is this, you know, general and admin is considered distinct from costs of goods sold when you're analyzing the health of a for-profit enterprise. And there is some benchmarking, but it's not done in the sort of draconian way that we are in this sector. I mean, at the end of the day, saying, is it 10% or is it 20%, I'm thrilled to read that Darren Walker at the Ford Foundation has decided to double from 10 to 20 But at the end of the day, it's not the percentage. It's really about the enterprise, what it's trying to achieve, what kind of resources it needs to do that. Because again, depending on what you're trying to do, what we might agree could be considered overhead might simply be more expensive for some entities than others. Another of my favorite examples is years ago, I worked in a New York City nonprofit that worked with other nonprofits. And I was horrified to learn that in low-income communities, if you're a nonprofit and you need space, you need what is effectively commercial space to deliver programs. The sort of volume of commercial space available in low-income neighborhoods is actually quite low. As a result, in Harlem, you might, and this is years ago, you might spend significantly more per square foot as a renter of space for commercial purposes as a nonprofit in Harlem than you would in midtown Manhattan. And it was horrifying to me, and frankly, it makes, in large quotation marks, overhead much higher for those organizations. And you have some who are fortunate enough to get free space. Well, that changes their overhead question. And then for some, owning space is really important. That increases their overhead. So it's a sort of artificial measure. And I've been doing this work a long time. I don't think it has any bearing on whether an organization is effective. I think there are many more things that are valuable to look at. And I really wish overhead would go away. And I think you know this. There's been a project really focused on this. And some really smart people like Jacob Harold at GuideStar and the folks at Nonprofit Association uh, in, in D.C. have really done a lot of work. And in fact... I believe it was effective 20, gosh, 14 or 15, that the Federal Office of Management and Budget had changed the rules for how to determine the indirect rate is for nonprofit organizations with money that flows from the federal government. It sort of changes the game because often what happens is as money flows from federal to state to local, each of those levels of government adds their own criterion and takes some money away. And they're saying, actually, there's a flat rate of at least 10%, which doesn't sound like a lot on the one hand, but if you knew how many nonprofits don't even get that, because they don't have the systems in place to articulate what the real rate is, it just sort of creates a floor. 
that's a little more realistic. So I feel like there's progress, but it's just it's one of those things people hold on to because it's a number, and people love to have the number. So one of the things I've found really interesting in my time in nonprofit land is this idea that somehow people not, who work for nonprofits should be paid a pittance or nothing. I had a person just like a few weeks ago when I said that Heron was 100% for mission say, oh, you know, there's no overhead. And I was like, I actually, I, I draw a salary. <laughs> Can you talk a little bit about this disconnect around people in particular? And I know there's a lot of discomfort around this, but I just feel like there's some sense that we are Mother Teresa and that we should work for free, as opposed to bringing in really talented people to solve um, really tough problems. Yeah, I mean, I think partly it's, it stems from what you just described. I think for many people, first and foremost, the word charity is used to describe organizations a lot of the time, and it's a fact in the Internal Revenue Code, right? And I think when people think of charity, they think of the people who are offering charity as doing it from the goodness of their hearts, and not seeking any financial benefit as a result. And I think that's legitimate up to a point. I think the reality is that today, the world in which we live today requires really enterprises to deliver on sort of its long-term impact. It's not just what you hand out today. It's having the ability to be the food bank that's there for the long term or to be the homeless services organizations there for the long term. As you described, these are problems that are not going to go away quickly. It's really addressing individual needs. I think it's really problematic to ask nonprofit organizations to solve major societal problems by themselves. These are problems that require political will. They require economic resources being reallocated. It requires you know, a social moray and set of systems where people actually value people. And the reality is not everyone feels the same way about it, but yet everyone feels like, you know, the the economy should solve these problems. Well, you know, yeah, they're problems, but you don't necessarily solve them in one swell foop, right? You solve them by dealing with different individuals and their needs. And what I find really exciting is when you see in various communities groups of organizations and funders looking at a systems issue and trying to figure out how to have multiple players address the various issues that people are facing. But I just feel like, you know, I feel like we make this harder on organizations. I think we make make it harder on society because we tend to sort of make people feel like they are a problem rather than that they have problems. Um, I'd love to see us make that shift. So last question, how do we change the conversation, particularly about revenue? My mind was thinking, oh, we need a, like an unrestricted revenue pledge that we get people to sign on to. I mean, how can we make this something that's fun and exciting where we're actually changing the conversation as opposed to us shaking our finger and going, you know, why are you hamstringing nonprofits? Yeah, I love that question. I mean, you're a much more creative person than I. And so the idea of doing a campaign of some sort of the pledge idea is really it's sort of a it's sort of an interesting twist on the pledge idea. And I suspect that we could get people to do that. It's a way of sort of saying, let's do this together and celebrating that some of us are doing it, which could, in fact, I think, incentivize others. My fantasy, which isn't a direct answer, but I think it's relevant, imagine that just as we have in the for-profit sector among publicly traded companies, imagine if every nonprofit had a business plan that they refreshed on a regular basis, they articulated their value proposition, articulated how they're going to deliver, how they're going to measure their performance, 
the capital they need to invest in the enterprise, where the revenue is going to come from, etc. And they simply shopped that plan around and various investors would invest for capital and various funders would provide revenue into a single plan. And they would all get regular reports. Investors might get more detail than funders. But imagine if we had a system that was more like that, it would sort of force the question on unrestricted revenue because it really would become not a possibility. You either buy into the plan or you don't. And if you're a provi- provider of revenue, you get to you know, witness the, the performance of the enterprise. And if you think they're doing a good job, you can buy more of their services. If you're an investor and you believe they're doing a great job and they need more capital, you can invest more capital. But you don't get to decide as the investor or the funder how the organization spends their money. For me, that would be a form of nirvana. Wow. Thanks, Rodney. For Heron.org, this is Tony Johnson.